Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Just five months after Fish debuted the entirety of Gamehenge live at Nectar's, the band traveled westward to Colorado for a short tour in the summer of 1988. This was the first time Mike Page, Fishman, and Trey were leaving the Northeast to play. And they were doing it completely on a whim, trusting the word of a stranger who claimed to have booked their gigs. Their travels were the start of the band's westward expansion, the beginning of what would become a tradition of taking their music further to uncharted territory across the country, providing an opportunity for casual spectators to become lifelong fans. In the summer of 1988, Fish played seven gigs in 10 days in Telluride and Aspen, Colorado. Their gig on August 3rd, 1988 was at the Fly Me to the Moon Saloon in Telluride. In the third set, Mike Gordon started playing a song he wrote that Trey would reference as Microdot, a play on the words, Mike wrote that, and that song we know today as Mike's song. In 1988, the band started playing the song as part of a suite, along with I Am Hydrogen, which is a song I wrote with Trey and Mark Daubert, and Wikipod Groove, a combination known as Mike's Groove. But as with anything from this band, nothing is so set in stone, nothing is so crystallized, that it can't be alternated or looked at differently. At this show, Fluffhead was played instead of Wikipog, which had only debuted two weeks earlier. In this Mike song, the band teased Dave's Energy Guide, a song that is chased now by fans everywhere, but rarely seen these days. 
This was inspired by the amazing finger patterns of King Crimson's guitarist, Robert Fripp, who will be discussed in detail later. In this episode, you'll hear once again from David Goldstein and Brian Brinkman, who dive into Mike's song from August 3rd, 1988, and other important versions from the 80s. Additionally, they'll look at the impact Colorado has had on Fish's career. Finally, they'll examine the role King Crimson and Peter Gabriel's Genesis played in influencing Fish's songwriting and the parallels between those bands and Fish. To it right after this quick word from our sponsors. All right, let's throw it to Dave and Brian for a deep dive into Mike's song from August 3rd, 1988, as well as a deeper examination of the show and the importance of Colorado on fish. Let me ask you right off the bat, Brian. So why are we talking about the Mike song from Telluride, Colorado from August 3rd, 1988 today? So this is one of the earliest improvisational versions of Mike song. It features Fish in a classic bar in Telluride, Colorado, weaving in and out of themes and ideas, showcasing their budding communication as musicians. At the tail end of Mike's role as a single jam jam vehicle, the second jam that we know today would not debut until March of 1989, and by 1990, Mike's would be honed as a focused arena rock jam. We hear the band here exploring beyond the limits of the song's F-sharp B jam that is so well known at this point in time. This version of Mike starts off a bit slower than we're used to, as was often par for the chorus in 87-88 Fish, but it really doesn't stay slow for too long. Yeah, Paige and Mike and Trey hook up around the four minute mark for a segment that's equally frenetic, taut, and pocketed in a groove, which sounds plucked out of August 1993, and we're treated to a slap bass extravaganza around 5.15. Mike, though, really pushes the band forward with spiraling leads around 6.15 that moves the jam away from arena rock structure into dissonance and noise. Jam could end at around 8.50, but Trey shifts towards what could really be called Plinko jamming before hooking up with Paige for a staccato jam segment, which feels plucked out of the second disc of a 70s prog rock record Trey was playing in his teenage basement. 
Yeah, so this builds and grows into a swell of noise and caustic interplay, showcasing Paige and Mike here, just nine years prior to their true breakouts, but here as essential idea men for Trey and Fish to push forward tension and release beyond a natural breaking point before a clear segue to I Am Hydrogen. Despite being an early version of the song, the heavy power chord ending signaling the shift to Hydrogen, or where there's 3.0, any number of songs is clearly evident. It's really uh, an incredible peek into fish in the summer of 1988. Dave's energy guide is still a jamming guidepost for the band, and we hear them pushing at the brink of their noise-laden prog rock experimentations ahead of their kind of dictated and essential trimming of the fat in 1989 that would eventually serve them incredibly well as they made their push across the country for the next four years. So in terms of some of the best early versions of Mike's song, we kind of wanted to walk you through some of the versions that we highly recommend listeners check out following hearing this episode to get a full picture of what Mike's song was doing in the late 1980s as it was evolving. So kicking things off, jumping back to 1986, I have two versions I highly recommend. The August 15th, 1986 version from Hunt's. This show was featured pretty heavily in episode two of this season. This is a really deady jam, and it's in a really fully formed show for late 1986. As well as two months later, the first show at the ranch, which we talked about uh, that venue in our previous episode, uh, episode three, December 6, 1986's Mike song goes as well into a massive Dave's Energy Guide jam. Dave, what else do we have from the 80s that you would recommend? Of course, from August 21st, 1987, the legendary Ian's Farm Show. Really incredible Mike's Jam with some serious fluffhead vibes. Getting into 1989 from March 24th, 1989 at the Paradise, Boston. This was the first version of Mike's song with the famed Second Jam. And then December 9th, 1989 from Castleton, Vermont. Very melodic jamming from Mr. Trey Anastasio. So stepping back here, we wanted to talk a bit about the show as a whole, uh, August 3rd, 1988, as well as this really famous and really important run that the band had over a course of a week in Telluride, Colorado, back in the summer of 88. So August 3rd is the middle night of a five night run for the band in Telluride, Colorado. After the Mike's hydrogen combination that you hear, you get a real deal version of Fluffhead as well as Harry Hood that totals 30 minutes, followed by Paige singing Duke Ellington's Satin Doll. This is all in addition to an earlier set, which had you enjoy myself, followed by a 10 minute Jesus Jeffs left Chicago. And even in 1988, you can't help but ask yourself, where are the band the planet does this? I mean, I'm just thinking that clearly some of the patrons would strap on their, their Rossignol skis and hot neon pink one piece the next morning knowing that nothing would ever be the same. It's almost like you get the sense listening to these shows and the larger Colorado 88 release that the band is approaching these gigs with equal parts, kind of like anything goes attitude, as well as a total determination to push their brand of concert entertainment on unsuspecting listeners 
in hopes they can convince people who don't know them that they're really worth coming back to listen to the next night. I mean, kind of, you think of stand-up comedians that can get big laughs from their friends and family, but they need to cut their teeth on big city open mic nights to see if their humor can translate to the people they don't already know. That's basically what Fish is doing here. The crowds are tiny, the jams are not. Kind of the large amount of often hilarious stage banter at these Colorado shows suggests that the band may have certainly had some butterflies. So stepping back, we wanted to take a look at the entire Telluride run from late July to early August 1988, kind of run through the five gigs that we have on record here. Uh, So July 29th was the first night at the Roma. This is a great intro show to Fish in Colorado. You Enjoy Myself opens things up. Plus you have the curtain with in set one, really setting the foundation of kind of what you're going to hear from Fish in 1988 at this point in time. You get covers in songs like Skin It Back, Jesus Just Left Chicago, and Good Times, Bad Times in set two. Plus you get an Iculus and a Forbins. And set three is filled with Fish staples from the era, namely Whipping Post and McGraw. So on July 30th, the next night at the Roma, Fishman missed the first two sets of this gig. So the band alternated between jazz standards and straightforward tunes with Trey on drums. How many bands are such that the guitars can just switch off the drums when the drummer misses the gig? There's a, a version of Herbie Hancock's Maiden Voyage, which is really excellent here. And set three has a torrid version of Timber and an antelope with Trey narrating about Fish's adventures on the mountain that day. And I think that most bands would consider taking LSD and climbing up a mountain to the point where you miss the gig of Fireball Offense. Fortunately, Fish are not most bands. Set four is about as mid-80s Fish as you could get, including versions of Fluffhead, Anarchy, Dear Mrs. Reagan and Sid Barrett's Terrapin. So a couple nights later on record, we get the Fly Me to the Moon show on August 3rd. Paige and Trey carried their gear across the street to the bar. You get this captured in the classic picture of the two walking across Main Street, Paige's keyboard and the San Juan Mountains towering behind them. As noted above, the show has an outstanding Harry Hood in set three, which follows Mike's and Fluffhead. Definitely encourage people to listen to this show. The next night, they're back at the Roma, August 4th. This has a Man Who Stepped In Yesterday opener, as well as alumni in set one. The sandwich tunes rule this set. You strangely get the debut of the song Poor Heart, which is kind of wild to think that they debuted a song 2,000 miles away from home, especially one that would be such a staple for the band going forward. And you also get No Dogs Allowed in set two, which might be the weirdest fish song ever written. Yeah, this song was a ditty that Trey co-wrote with his mom, Dina, for the kitty special Gus the Christmas Dog, which I have Googled on many occasions and all that turns up is fish stuff. So I don't think Gus the Christmas Dog is in existence anymore. And considering that this song is basically one half of a rudimentary sing-along and then literally one half what became Divided Sky, it begs the question of whether Trey and his mom forced four and five-year-olds to sit through half a divided sky. And this is not like a lost gem akin to, say, Spices or, I guess, Leprechaun. But fortunately for us, the best part of the song stuck around. I would still approve of a bust out of this, if nothing else, than just for the way that it would confuse most fans, like the first part. And then some would be like, what in the world? They're tacking Divided Sky onto this random song about dogs riding the subway. Yeah, I mean, if they wanted to play it at the gardens, certainly with the subway. It'd be very fitting. I think they allow like helper dogs on the subway, but like generic dogs are not allowed on the subway. So. <laughs> so 
the band closes out their five night run and tell you ride with a show on August 5th at the Roma incredible version of you enjoy myself with a direct segue into cities, which then segues in and out of Dave's energy guide. The whole run ends with a Harpua encore, which I didn't really consider until preparing for this episode. You get a nice nod to this moment during the uh, September 6, 2015 encore that the band would play at Dick's a couple of years later. 20 some years later in 2011 they ushered in a new tradition playing their first of 10 straight labor day weekend runs at the dick's sporting goods park just outside of denver it concluded every summer tour from 2011 through 2019 at dick's they became a storied tradition for the band and their fan base showcasing their continued development through the 3.0 era as well as their dedication to their larger historical narrative all of which started with a spur-of-the-moment trip out to Telluride. Not a really smart decision financially, but an incredible decision artistically, creatively, and a really foundational moment for what it meant to be a fish fan. Who among us hasn't said, I probably shouldn't drive to this fish show, but I'm going to do it anyway. In some ways, fish driving out to Telluride was their very own nod to their fan base over the next 30 years. So now... Let's listen to a little bit of the Mike song from August 3rd, 
After that jam, we need a quick breather. We'll be back after a word from our sponsors. What's up, Undermine listeners? Welcome back to Songs and Slopes, the segment where we pair music with some of the amazing beverages from Upslope Brewing. This week, we're looking at the year 1988. Brian, what do you have for us? So I'm going to go ahead here and feature the Rocky Mountain Kolsch, and I am pairing this today with Galaxy 500's debut record from 1988 called Today. So the Kolsch style ale is brewed with Colorado honey and sage. It's made with snowmelt, malt, lemon drop hops, mosaic hops, Colorado honey sage, as well as coriander. It's bright and welcoming, subtle and fruitful. It's what you want while watching baseball on a Sunday, which is kind of what you're looking for in this record as well. Galaxy 500's Today is an outstanding foundational album for dream pop, matching here with an outstanding foundational beer. It's lazy, kind of kicks you back, makes you feel like you're kind of dozing off there for a couple of seconds while still beckon you back in with great flavors and uh, great hops from uh, Colorado. The opening track, Flowers, beckons you in while the middle track, Don't Let Our Youth Go to Waste, and the closer, Tugboat, set you in your seat and keep you there for the remainder of the afternoon, much like one to two Kolsch's will do. 
So I encourage everyone here, pop on Galaxy 500s today, today, and have a sip of Rocky Mountain Kolsch from Upslope. Dave, what do you got? Okay, Brian, I'm just going to talk about Upslope's IPA, and I'm going to pair that with Widespread Panic's debut album, Space Wrangler from 1988. So because this is a fish podcast, this is basically Widespread Panic's version of Junta. A foundational record that still contains wall-to-wall classics that remain in the band's repertoire to this day. I'm talking about songs like Chilly Water, the signature title track, and their cover of J.J. Kale's Traveling Light that's so integral to Widespread that many people don't realize it's a cover. It's an amazing rock and roll record. And like Space Wrangler, Upslope's IPA is just a classic of the style. It's ideal for kicking back on the porch. It's really well-constructed and simple. I mean, it doesn't hit you over the head with excessive booze or overhopping. Really, it's just a great beer that gets it the hell done, just like Space Wrangler. All right, thanks, Brian and Dave, and thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time on Songs and Slopes. On March 6, 1982, in Alexander Hall on the campus of Princeton University, Trey, Dave Abrahams, Mark Daubert, and I saw King Crimson on their Discipline Tour. To say that the show is inspirational is an extreme understatement. We all left the auditorium buzzing with enthusiasm, utterly and completely blown away. At the time, we were playing and writing music together often, and immersing ourselves in Talking Heads, Yes, Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, and David Bowie. So when King Crimson came to town, it was a dream lineup for us, with Bill Bruford from Yes on drums, Tony Levin, who played with Peter Gabriel on bass, Robert Fripp, who's Brian Eno's go-to guitarist on guitar, and Adrian Ballou, fresh from touring with Talking Heads, on second guitar and vocals. That show occupied a huge part of our brains thereafter. Trey was galvanized, as were we all. Trey and Dave experimented on guitar after that, and if you listen to the song Discipline by King Crimson, which is what the tour was named after, you'll hear the building blocks to Dave's energy guide. At the very least, some of Dave's and Trey's ideas were animated and validated at that show by Robert Fripp and Adrian Ballou. The show changed Dave Abrahams and Trey's playing and composing, in the short term definitely, and maybe in the long term too. Now, Brian and Dave are going to jump back into talking about King Crimson's huge impact on fish. All right, so at this point in the first season of Undermine, our main focus right now is songwriting and songwriting development for the band. We've talked a bit about the scene that established around the fish community and how that rose up over the course of the 1980s. We really want to focus right now on songwriting development. And Mike's song has become one of the most important songs within the overall fish lineage, the overall fish history, from a performance standpoint, from a song songwriting standpoint and the version that we played really showcases from an improvisational standpoint as well where fish was really kind of selecting from influence wise as they were moving forward in their career so we thought it was only appropriate to highlight two artists 
that really impacted Fish's growth and development from a songwriting standpoint throughout the 1980s. First up here, we're going to talk about King Crimson. So one of the most important bands of the last 50 years, King Crimson was a constantly evolving collection of brilliant musicians, challenging musical norms, and embracing and influencing styles from classical to jazz to folk to metal to larger experimental music. Robert Fripp is the only constant in the group, but artists such as Tony Levin, Adrian Ballou, Trey Gunn, and Pat Mestolato have been part of the group from time to time. Following their jazz classical experimental debut in 1968, the band went on to open for the Rolling Stones at Hyde Park before evolving into a more European improvised act. They returned in the early 1980s with a focus on post-punk, New York City minimalism, and gamelan music before going on hiatus for a decade. In the early 1990s, the advent of MIDI technology resulted in another creative breakthrough for the band, who existed into the 2000s while focusing heavily on industrial and technologically driven music. They currently tour as an octet with a three-drum kit frontline, touring while rearranging the music of their larger career in the live setting. Brian, who would you say that King Crimson was initially influenced by? So like early Genesis, King Crimson arrives in an era where blues and R&B tended to set the foundation of most rock music. As a band, they however tended to shun this foundation on the whole, opting instead to play rock music that saw its foundation more in the world of improvisational jazz and classical compositions. While they were known to play songs like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds in rehearsals, as well as songs by Donovan in concert, guitarist Robert Fripp was quick to call Bella Bartok their most influential previous musician. Many look to their debut record in the Court of the Crimson King from 1968 as the logical starting point of progressive rock. That said, on court, you can still hear the influence of English folk music, a style that has always flirted with the psychedelic, classical, and folk storytelling through and through. As King Crimson evolved, they incorporated additional influences, including, as noted above, gamelan music and then New York City minimalism in the early 80s, as well as MIDI and industrial music in the mid-1990s. How did the music of King Crimson reflect Trey's songwriting and mindset throughout the 1980s? So perhaps the most King Crimson fish song is Dave's Energy Guide, a song which sounds lifted from the band's 1981 album Discipline. That said, King Crimson is littered all over Trey's and Fish's 1980s output. I Am Hydrogen and Slave are basically a dedication to Robert Fripp. Fluffhead, Divided Sky, You Enjoy Myself in the Court Curtain With incorporate the progressive rock approach to song construction while being influenced by classical composers rather than R&B. The idea of The Man Who Stepped Into Yesterday as a concept album is lifted in many ways from the work of King Crimson in Genesis and English folk. From a jamming standpoint, Fish clearly took a note out of King Crimson's approach to improv, which avoids the westernized approach of one soloist taking center stage while his bandmates back him up. 
Rather, King Crimson's approach to jamming is to work as a group where in which each member is able to make creative decisions and contributions as the music is being played and evolving. As we noted in the August 29th, 1987 David Bowie, this August 3rd, 1988 Mike song, and the next jam that we'll be featuring in episode nine, this approach to jamming as a unit rather than following a soloist, has been with Fish since the earliest stage of their career and clearly was influenced by King Crimson. So how would you say that King Crimson evolved over time and how does this evolution tie in with uh, Fish's evolution? So there are essentially four foundational periods of King Crimson as a band and they mirror Fish's evolution and Trey's songwriting in a multitude of ways. Number one is the 60s and 70s, a very progressive and focused band on jazz improvisation. This set the foundation for their career going forward. No matter where they'd go next, many fans found themselves fully drawn to this period, and many of their best songs are from here. You can essentially align this with Fish's 1980s period. Incredibly ambitious, ahead of their time, but rife with creativity and songs that stuck. Go to any Fish show, and the biggest songs are more than likely to be the older tunes that just sound like Fish. The second period for King Crimson is the early 1980s. This is, like I said, where you incorporate New York City minimalism, post-punk, gamelan sounds. The best album from this period is probably Discipline, and listening to it, especially with Adrian Ballou all over it, you can hear a ton of connection to Romanian Light era talking heads. Similarly, you can connect this most to Fish's embrace of rhythm and minimalism in late 1996 and 1997 and 98. In many ways, their decision to pursue a more minimalistic and intra-band connected style of music can be easily drawn back to King Crimson own musical decisions during this era. Jumping ahead, the mid-90s and early 2000s are the third era for King Crimson. This is where they're focused on MIDI technology and industrial music, best heard on the album Thrack from 1995. There's a loose parallel here to Fish from 1999 to 2004. The mood is darker, technology plays a more important factor in all their songwriting, and even alternative rock creeps into their songwriting. See, like, Round Room. Finally, the fourth period for King Crimson is the octet, reworking many of their best songs throughout their career, including songs from the Court to Lark's Tongue era for the first time in four decades. Playing live has been the main focus during this era. Clearest connection here is 3.0 Fish, where the band has re-embraced their past while interpreting it in a variety of ways. So as you see it, Brian, what do you think is the legacy of King Crimson? Essentially creating progressive rock. Where would we be with music in the 1970s and 80s if there wasn't a path away from R&B driven rock to something more composed and focused on classical approaches to songwriting and improv? While they're not universally loved, I'd argue music would be a lot less dynamic without Yes, Genesis, Rush, and any number of prog rock bands who push music forward during a period where a perception of a hit single could drive a career forward no matter what. Elsewhere, King Crimson has influenced bands from the Mars Volta to Primus, of course to Fish, to Tool, metal bands like Paul Bearer, punk bands like Black Flag, Bad Religion, Opeth, and even Nirvana's approach to recording in their final album, In Utero. Ultimately, King Crimson is a band that find themselves by breaking rules and allowing their songwriting inspiration to guide them rather than any trends at the time. Parallels here to Fish are so clear as Fish has built this incredibly successful career all while staying outside of the musical zeitgeist.
The biggest influence of Genesis on me is the album The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It was released in 1974, and it was Peter Gabriel's magnum opus. So much so that he felt he couldn't do anything else to top it in that band, and so he left Genesis in 1975. After his departure, I felt they never really had that unique spark again, so I instead followed Peter Gabriel on his solo journey. The album Before the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, however, was the also amazing Selling England by the Pound from 1973. On that album is a song that Trey and I said was the best Genesis song ever, and at the time possibly the best song ever, Firth of Fifth. I loved it and still do. As a pianist keyboardist, I learned to play every note of that song. Even when Tony Banks, their keyboardist, changes from piano to synth, I was right there doing the same thing in my parents' living room, over and over again until I got it right or I drove them crazy, whichever came last. I even had a patch on my keyboard to mimic Peter Gabriel's flute. Lyrically though, I was most influenced by The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. The story that unfolds on that album, I feel definitely also influenced Trey while he was conceiving of the man who stepped into yesterday. It's kind of funny, before we really got to know Tom Marshall, Brian and myself had the pleasure of interviewing him for uh, Beyond the Pond back in January of 2018. In that interview, he had cited Peter Gabriel as being a huge influence in both himself and Trey Anastasio. In particular, pointed to Gabriel's third solo album, released in 1980 simply as Peter Gabriel III, though often referred to by fans as Melt, on account of the fact that the album artwork in which half of Gabriel's face is doing exactly that. Melt is generally thought of the strongest Peter Gabriel solo record top to bottom, and it's easy to see why uh, an avowed King Crimson fan like Trey Anastasia would, would, would be drawn to it. And while it's hardly a secret that Trey was a huge fan of Gabriel-era Genesis albums like Foxtrot and Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, nearly every track to Melt features a member of the disciplined era King Crimson, and Phil Collins plays drums in nearly half of it. So. For what's generally regarded as a very popular album, it sounds significantly dark and claustrophobic with a healthy dose of paranoia. Part of this is due to the fact that Gabriel demanded that symbols not at all be used on the album, creating a very boxed-in sound that also features kind of the first recorded instance of the Phil Collins gated drum sound that would become all the rage in the 1980s, probably most notably on uh, his song In the Air Tonight on his Face Value record. This was the 80s drum sound kind of created by producer Hugh Padham and Steve Lillywhite. So the first single on this record, Games Without Frontiers, was a top 10 hit in the United Kingdom, but still, it's rather eerie and as far removed from, say, Sledgehammer as you could imagine. This is the one song from Melt you've likely heard, notable for uh, the artist Kate Bush's song, Frontier Hook, which is misheard as a million other things. The song I Don't Remember is practically a King Crimson song that features both Tony Levin on Chapman's stick, Robert Fripp on guitar, and the album ends with one of Gabriel's signature songs called Biko, which is a soaring ballad and tribute to the murdered South African freedom fighter Steve Biko. It sounds very much like something you two would have attempted in the early 80s. Not for nothing that Steve Lillywhite produced Melt. So Dave, 
How did the music of Peter Gabriel and early Genesis reflect Trey's songwriting and mindset throughout the 1980s? I mean, from a purely sonic standpoint, I don't think there's a ton of similarity between early Fish compositions in Genesis and or Gabriel. Although certainly I think a song like Slave to the Traffic Light kind of features that big A major build that actually bears some similarity to Trick of the Tail era Genesis, uh, the song Squonk in particular. However, I think it's more of a general sense of adventure, an ability to place fantastical characters in your head, and kind of a willingness to construct pop rock songs outside of the usual confines of the genre. Like Peter Gabriel can write an entire album without using any symbols on drum kits, and kind of the effect is unique to the point where you hardly realize that they're missing. And likewise, Trey Anastasio can use thoroughly notated compositional techniques to write about something as silly as the Lizard People or Colonel Forbin and the Great Prophet Iculus. Like Peter Gabriel, while uh, early Fish songs themselves may contain fantasy characters and in some sense some nonsense lyrics, though to be fair, Gabriel got considerably more topical with his solo career, the overall attention to detail is both serious and staggering. Also, it's worth noting that Steve Lillywhite produced Peter Gabriel 3 and then he produced Fish's Billy Breeze 16 years later. Bit of a mutual admiration society. And how did Peter Gabriel and Genesis evolve over time and how did does this evolution tie in with Fish's evolution? I would say much like Fish, the earliest Genesis songs are among their most complex and written out. And as the size of their audience swelled, uh, they found ways in which to make prog rock more accessible for stadium-sized crowds. And once Peter Gabriel left Genesis, his earliest records weren't really that far removed from what he had been doing with his prior outfit, although perhaps more indebted to 1980s new wave music with less of a British folk feel. But I think it's not a coincidence that both Genesis and Gabriel released their commercial smash hits in 1986 with Invisible Touch and So, respectively. Both artists heartily embraced commercial pop music and they were rewarded handsomely for it. I mean, take it from somebody who was seven years old in 1986, the video for Sledgehammer was utterly inescapable on MTV. Inescapable! And this was a few years before Cameron Crowe's Say Anything would uh, vault album closer in your eyes to the hipster wedding slow dance staple it has remained to this day. So while Fish never had the type of commercial radio breakouts that Genesis and Peter Gabriel did, I think it can be argued that like Electra tried with Hoist and Billy Breeds. I certainly think that Trey Anastasio's songwriting throughout the years has become more direct, less prone to flights of fancy, and more geared towards exploring human concerns. And much like Fish, like Genesis and Gabriel, they need to learn how to play to arena-sized crowds. And finally, what is the legacy of Peter Gabriel and Genesis? Simply stated, I think both of the textbook examples of already progressive rock bands that gradually became huge institutions by embracing the mainstream pop of the 1980s. The Colorado 1988 tour began to cultivate a fish scene which expanded beyond Vermont to various other parts of the country, and the scene remains strong today. In 2006, Fish released Colorado 88, a three-CD live album from their shows in Aspen and Telluride, to commemorate music from a tour that laid the foundation for Fish in Colorado for decades to come. In this episode, we've looked at other great versions of Mike's song from the 1980s. Be sure to check those out in full and let us know your thoughts and comments on social media. Beyond Fish, we explore the evolution and enduring legacies of King Crimson and Genesis and how their music influenced Trey's compositions 
and Fish's improvisations. episode of Undermine, we'll be looking in-depth at Fish's first studio album, Junta, and what that meant for the band's progression towards the 90s. In the final four episodes of this first season, we're going to explore how Fish transitioned from a college bar band into a professional band, ready to take their strange mix of progressive rock, improv, complex compositions, and humor on the road. Undermine is brought to you by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Tom Marshall, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Produced and edited by Brian Brinkman. Mixed and mastered by Matt Dwyer. Co-hosted by David Goldstein, Jonathan Hart, and Brad Tenbrook. Writing and production assistance by Noah Eckstein. Production assistance by Christina Collins and Don Jenkins. Original music by Amar Sastry. Art by Mark Dowd. We'll see you next week. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2Z. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.